You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed thankful for your word. We are listening to it, uh, even in a difficult passage such as this one. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and faith to believe that this is for our good and that you are for our good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Uh, This week is both a torch week scheduled and an unscheduled lower elementary week. Uh, So hopefully you guys saw in the weekly email that uh, this is a Laurel Elementary Week, given the the content that we might be talking about. Parents, Laurel is still in the back. If you missed that and would like your Laurel Elementary student uh, to go to the Laurel Elementary class this evening, you can still accompany your child to the back, check them in, and then come back in a couple of minutes. Uh, So as they file out, uh, in 2014, when I was the youth minister at Desert Springs Church, I showed a 2005 60 Minutes interview with Tom Brady. Uh, It's one of the sadder things that you can see on the internet. In that interview, Brady had just won his third Super Bowl. In 2005, he said this. He said, a lot of times I think I get very frustrated and introverted, and there's times where I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? And the interviewer then says, so what's the answer? And he says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I shared that in 2014 with youth kids. And then I shared that with you Uh, when we were going through the book of Ecclesiastes back in 2018, when Brady was then 41 and had played in five more Super Bowls, winning two of those. Uh, Since 2018, when I last shared that with you, he's now 45, he's still playing, and has won another Super Bowl. He retired last year and then came back. It sure seems like he just can't stop, right? He doesn't know what he's looking for. He hasn't found what he was looking for then at 27. It seems like he hasn't now at 45. He has everything that he could dream of, and yet he intuitively knows that the money, the fame, the success isn't what he was made for. Now, I'll probably keep sharing that quote like five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, probably when he's still playing. Uh, But I keep sharing this not because I have an unhealthy obsession with Tom Brady, I think, Uh, but because at 27, Tom Brady just had the guts to say out loud what we would never say. And I think that his career is so public now that he and his wife and his family like get psychoanalyzed in a way that we don't, but I think that our lives actually aren't that dissimilar. But wait a minute, like, what are you even talking about here, Sherman? Like, we dismissed the kids to talk about Super Bowl rings? Like, what's going on? Didn't you just hear what Jess just read? Uh, Yes, this is a sermon about sexual immorality. Oh boy. Now, Earlier this week, I was reading Sam Albury's excellent little book. It's just titled, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? It's a great book. And he quotes another author who reflected on the very root of our word sex or sexual. It comes from the Latin root of the word sacare, which literally means to cut off, to separate, to disconnect from the whole, which doesn't seem like it's a very good word for that word. But this author that Albrecht quotes says this, long before we even come to self-consciousness, 
And long before we reach puberty, when our sexuality constellates so strongly around the desire for sex, we feel ourselves painfully sexed, meaning separated, cut off, disconnected. We find ourselves painfully sexed in every cell of our body, in our psyche, in our soul, meaning we wake up in the world and in every cell of our being we ache consciously and unconsciously, sensing that we are incomplete, sensing that we are unwhole, lonely, cut off, a little piece of something that was once part of a whole. So Albury concludes, in other words, our longing for completeness is not about physical, sexual fulfillment as though that would in itself make us feel whole. Instead, our sexual desires are but one particularly acute reflection of a much deeper desire all of us have to be whole. So here's the thing. In Ephesians 5, 3 through 5, Paul makes some very clear connections for our desire for sex to greed, to covetousness, which we could then say is a never-satisfied search for wholeness, for meaning what Brady said all those years ago, that it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be, this life. What else is there for me? Now, these are, these are dangerous waters that we are setting out into tonight. Uh, by even putting these words together, sexual immorality, those, that combination of words will undoubtedly be heard or received by some as discriminating, as backward, as even hateful. Sexual freedom is now perhaps one of the greatest freedoms and even inherent rights that we value as a society. What and with whom we do with our bodies is thought as a supreme human right. And often, any suggestion otherwise toward boundaries, toward constraint, is viewed as a threat to who we are as humans. Additionally, for others, any conversation about sex will nearly always be difficult because of past experiences, painful experiences, experiences of shame, experiences of guilt, or even of unmet desire or longing. So praise God. For all of us, no matter where we are, for who we are in our past or present, the gospel of grace is here for us today, tonight. Mercy, transformation in the gospel of Jesus is present now. So hang in there with us for the next 35 minutes or so. And then Lord willing, as a church, this can be a jumping off point to deeper conversations that we can have with one another for the next many decades together. So we only have three verses to think through here tonight. And we aren't necessarily going to go word for word, but, or word by word, but instead use these three verses to get to and arrive at what I think Paul's larger point is by asking three questions about these three verses. First, what is sexual immorality? Then, what is the result of sexual immorality? And then third, what is the antidote of sexual immorality? So first question for us tonight, what is sexual immorality? Remember where we've been. We, if you're visiting with us tonight, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, we have been walking through the book of Ephesians. We didn't just parachute in on these verses. So where we have been through this book is that Paul has been over and over and over again making these what was comparisons versus now what is. What was, now what is. Dead, now alive. Divided, now united. Old self versus new self. Jesus has been exalted in heaven over all things as king, and now God is bringing all things in heaven and earth into unity with him. So God has brought dead sinners into a new realm of the King Jesus. So Augustine, who in the fourth century, who was still under Roman rule, famously understood what was happening in world history around him, in the coming of Christ, as people who were once living in a, what he described as a city of man, now that God was establishing as a new kingdom under Christ as a city of God. There's this city of man, and a, people are moving from that into a new realm in Christ into the city of God. This is not a physical city, but they move into a new age, a spiritual kingdom of the good king. And so, these people, these new citizens of this new kingdom, enter into this city only by the victory won by this good king. There are no fees to enter the city. There are no taxes to enter the city to both get in and to stay in. 
The king has lived and died and been raised to new life that his enemies might become his friends and that they might live in peace under his good and right reign with him and through him, with each other in unity and in love. But here's the thing about this kingdom and about this kingdom, or the king and the kingdom. The king is so kind, so gracious, so merciful, so loving, so patient, so welcoming. Anyone who wants to come in can come in. It is free admission and all expenses are paid. But when you enter, there are new norms, new expectations, new societal norms and realities. There are created goods for the flourishing of individuals who may or may not intuitively know what is good for them. And there are created goods for the flourishing of wider society in this kingdom. So anyone can enter the city of God, but when you do, the king patiently patiently demands that you must not continue living as those outside in the city of man. Those living inside the city of God, not perfectly, not immediately, but these new kingdom citizens agree with the king that, yes, I desire to have your character, O king. You are the right norm of reality here in this place, and it is my desire to conform to your character. So remember last week in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Or as we have said so many times, our justification, our being made right before God, our entering into the city of having our sins forgiven, being declared righteous at the cross of Christ, the forgiveness of our sins is just the, a, a means to an end. The Step one for the rest of our lives of an ongoing and increasing glorification, of becoming more like the character of the king. And so now here, after imploring our imitation of Christ, our being imitators of God, then this word comes in verse three, but. One of the very first things that Paul thinks of as the antithesis of the imitating of God, of the walking in love of verses 1 and 2 is verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. One of, if not the first things, one of the first expectations or demands of the kingdom, one of the chief characteristics of the king and the people of the king is a true and right sexual ethic. Now again, to say, even say, to put these words together, sexual immorality means that there must be something as sexual morality, a true and right standard that implies boundaries, that implies restraint. Now again, to even suggest boundaries and restraint today is borderline hate speech. Seemingly the chief good or highest goal of the West today is to discover and then to celebrate and to live into your authentic self what one wants and feels internally or psychologically is then the highest good for what we must then become externally or physically. The internal psychological self must be the leader to the external physical self, so our culture tells us. And our culture tells us this not just with like psychologists or academics, but so does Instagram, so does TikTok, so does even Christian self-help, that we must find out and search out the authentic inner self and then be, let that become our guiding light. But here's the thing. All humans, all of us know that this cannot be right. We know intuitively that this cannot be right. None of us really, if we are honest, none of us really want to celebrate our inner authentic self. It's been suggested that none of us would be comfortable with a visible, readable thought bubble over our heads. Think about if you were to have a visible, readable thought bubble of everything that you think internally, how horrifying that would be. Can you imagine if every one of your internal thoughts were visible to the world, world around you? We know that our inner selves are so terrible, so embarrassing, so untrustworthy, very often uh, embarrassing. These are not trustworthy guides. Which one of these voices inside is the reliable one, is the true and authentic inner life? 
How can a human even know this? It seems that we just seem to like pick and choose which self, which inner self, which inner voice we like for that day or we'd like to celebrate. We know that there are some things, some desires that we as humans must not want, that we must not act on. We as a society have even said, like, there are legal things that if you act on this desire, that is actually illegal. We must not act on certain things. We know this to be intuitively true, so the question is not, should there be sexual boundaries or restraint? Again, all functioning human cultures and societies agree with that, that there should be some sexual boundaries. And again, I don't need to name those. The question then becomes is which boundaries or where should there be restraint individually or societally? And so Paul here in Ephesians 5 says that sexual immorality must not even be named among the church. Now, sexual immorality in the original Greek is just one word. This is the Greek word porneia, which we obviously get our word pornography from. from. And this is a word, porneia, that Paul regularly uses in many of his letters. Among other places in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, he says this. He says, for this is the will of God. You want to know what the will of God is for your life? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you abstain from porneia. Likewise, when Jesus is teaching about the fruits or evidences of our hearts belonging to God, he says this in Matthew 15, he says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, porneia, theft, false witness, slander. These are all what defile a person. So, What is porneia? What is sexual immorality? Well, I wish we had time for a full survey of the entire Bible, and even for the way this word gets used in Greek outside of the Bible, but we can say that sexual immorality is like an umbrella category that includes lots of different things as it's used in the Bible. One is sex before marriage, what the Bible often uses in the older language of fornication. Or porneia also includes or encompasses adultery, which is sex between two people when one of those people is covenantally married to someone else. A third thing that is encompassed under porneia is prostitution. And then, fourthly, and not controversially within the Bible, absolutely in Paul and Jesus' first century Jewish understanding is that a fourth category that would fall under porneia would be that of same-sex sexual expression. Now, I realize that I just like walked down a hallway and like casually threw a bunch of grenades into lots of different rooms that we don't have time to actually enter. And so I would love to meet with you or make book recommendations, or we have spent many sermons and seminars on uh, lots of these issues that I can point you to, or just meet with you over coffee to hear your story, to talk through these difficult topics to read or talk more about, like, even how our societal understandings of what the authentic inner self, uh, how this today actually mirrors almost identically the Greek philosophy of Plato, that Plato taught that the soul is imprisoned in this, like, body prison. And that is essentially the exact same philosophy today, that being a person is different. Your personhood is different than your humanhood that our bodies are incidental to who we really are and how that affects how we think about sexuality and gender and abortion and euthanasia and on and on and on. Those things actually aren't the questions. What we think about sexuality and gender and abortion and euthanasia, the question behind those questions is what is a human? And the Bible has a lot to say about that. And it is in almost fundamental disagreement with both Plato and today's philosophical understandings about what is a human, and we need to have those conversations, and let's keep talking about them through these texts and in our GCs and over coffee. But for tonight, and maybe before going any further, it's best to ask why God has made us as sexual beings in the first place. That is, why did he not make us asexual creatures? He could have. There are microorganisms, there are cells that reproduce themselves asexually. I've shared this with you before, I think, but like he could have made me to reproduce so that the top half of me just slides off the bottom half of me, and then I've reproduced myself. So here's the question. 
until we understand why God did not make me to reproduce that way, then I think we'll fundamentally misunderstand the question. Why did God make us sexual creatures in the first place? And the purpose of our sexual relationship is this, to serve as a living portrait of the life-changing spiritual union that believers have with God through Christ. The purpose of sexual relationships, of human sexual relationships, is to serve as a living portrait of the life-changing spiritual union that believers have with God through Christ. So how is this? It has lots of components. We've said lots of times through Ephesians that before the coming of Christ, there were lots of shadowy uh, realities in the Old Testament that looked like the substance You can see the shadow on the ground, but that thing, while it might look like it, is not the actual substance. These are what the Bible calls types, that God had purposed something like the Passover lamb in the Exodus story to be a type of Christ. It looks like the substance, but the shadow is actually different than the substance. Similarly, God created sexual union to be a type of Christ's one flesh union with his church. This is Christ's one flesh union with the church. Human sexual relationships look like it, but they're actually pointing toward this thing. The Passover lamb didn't just share some happy coincidences. It is not just a sermon illustration. No, the Passover lamb from eternity past was divinely designed to point toward the real thing, the substance. And the same thing is true of sex. So jumping ahead to the end of chapter 5, Paul writes this in Ephesians 5, 24 through 32. He says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, and now he's quoting from the book of Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul says about that verse, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So by what logic here does Paul ask husbands and wives to relate to one another as Christ relates to the church? The answer is in verse 32. He says that human marriage refers to Christ and the church. In other words, marriage is a type of Christ's relationship and the church. That is, from eternity past, Jesus and the church comes before Adam and Eve. Did you hear what I just said? Before the creation of the world, before Adam and Eve, in the divine mind, the the, the divine design Christ and the church actually precedes it. It is not the other way around. It is not that Paul, in, he's writing down Ephesians 5, and he's like, you know what? Uh, Jesus and the church actually very much reminds me of a human marriage. No, he's saying, you know what? The human marriage actually is pointing toward this all along. And so Augustine says that it is of Christ and the church that it is most truly said, the two shall become one flesh. When we read Genesis 1 and 2 about the human marriage, about two becoming one flesh, that should trigger all of the alarm bells to say this is Jesus and the church. There are two different but complementary beings. Throughout the creation narratives of Genesis 1 and 2, there is unity through difference. Unity in difference, through difference in light, in darkness, in heaven, and earth, in land, in sea, in sky, in water, in male, and female. And so biological difference and complementarity brings one fleshness. It is not to take us back to an age of sexual repression to say that there is a biological fit to how God has designed and created humans sexually through difference. And so something profound happens in sexual intercourse. The marriage union is not simply a legal union, not simply a social union, not simply a financial union or a familial union, but rather, on top of all of those things, a union of bodies, a sharing of physical life. And after the marriage covenant is verbally agreed to at a wedding, it is then ratified with sex. Sex initiates and then sustains the marriage covenant. So I've shared several times that I heard an an analogy once that I initially thought was like borderline sacrilegious, but now that I totally agree with. 
that sex in a covenantal marriage acts very much like the communion table does. Does just like with our covenantal bridegroom. This, at the table and sex, is a continual and visceral reminder of the covenant. It is both initiating and then sustaining. And so sex is something, as Tim Keller says, that God invented to do whole life entrustment with. I love this phrase. Sex is something that God invented so that humans can do whole life entrustment with one another. Keller says that Paul insists it is radically dissonant to give your body to someone to whom you will not commit your whole life to. Or as I've been thinking about about it this week, that sex is whole selfing yourself. Sex is a whole selfing to your covenantal spouse. In a safe and trusting and growing and flourishing marriage, you don't give sex as a gift. You give yourself as the gift. You are whole selfing yourself to one another in a full and unbroken communion. Now, we'll have more to think about with marriage in a few weeks when we swing back around to the verses that we read just a minute ago. But again, this is but just a type As I shared with you a few weeks ago, Glenn Harrison puts it this way, whether we are married or single in this life, sexual desire is our inbuilt homing instinct for the divine. Love that. Our inbuilt homing instinct for the divine, a kind of navigation aid showing us the way home. You could think of sexual desire as a form of body language. Our bodies talk to us about a greater reality of fulfillment and eternal blessing, and it urges us to go there. But it goes even further than your body, because sexual desire isn't always expressed physically. Jesus wants our hearts. He says in Matthew 5 that to even look lustfully upon another is adultery. When we are using others to satisfy our appetites, it might as well be physical, with lesser consequences for sure, but for those who have given their allegiance to King Jesus to be made like him in his character, people who are growing and becoming more like him in their view of other people as created image bearers of God, carrying all of the dignity of God, then other image bearers of God do not exist for my appetites, do not exist for my worship. But these other image bearers of God exist for the glory of God that I might give to other humans, not take from them. And so it's likely with this in mind that Paul doesn't merely highlight sexual immorality here. He says impurity and covetousness must also not be named amongst God's people. And then in verse 5, he says everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous. So covetousness, or in some other translations, greed is closely connected with sexual immorality. It is a longing for something that does not belong to me. A never-ending taking, taking, taking. Or, instead of having been filled by Christ, then the Christian character is that of giving and giving and giving. No longer taking and using other people, but to give. So to ignore this, Paul says, in in verse 3, is not proper amongst the saints or saints. He doesn't even say the saints. He just says saints, blanket statement. For those who God has set apart for holiness, we don't have a Catholic understanding of those. These are like super Christians. No, but anyone who who God has set apart for holiness, that is any Christian, is a saint. And to go on living with those same old desires and actions of the world outside of the kingdom of Christ is not proper among saints. It is not becoming of the family name Now, there are a thousand reasons for me to pursue a maturing sexual discipleship in my life. The gospel has freed me, has brought me to life, to bring me to increasing joy. The love of others and showing increasing dignity to fellow image bearers of Christ is another motivation. Again, my own joy in pursuing the kind of eternal communion which I was created for, but perhaps one overlooked motivation is none other than just no. I am a Christian. I do not pursue, I must not pursue sexual expression outside of or apart from my covenantal spouse. I have been made holy. I've been set apart for something other than that. That is the way and the ethic of the the city of man. 
I am a citizen of the king. Now again, we'll have much more to say about the patient mercy and grace of God's transformative gospel of, in, in the person of Christ, but that is a motivation. No, it is not proper among saints. It is not proper of the family name of belonging to Jesus. Now, what of those who are not married? We spent an entire Saturday morning together a few years ago thinking about singleness. Uh, so this is just a small snippet Uh, But in another book of Sam Alberry's, his book called The Seven Myths of Singleness, Sam, a man who finds himself attracted to other men, he writes this. He says, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. He says, this is liberating. It means my sexual feelings don't need to be met for their purpose to be fulfilled. When I feel that deep sense of longing, that feeling of sexual restlessness and frustration, I am to think of that ultimate restlessness that comes when we live apart from our Creator, a restlessness that has its answer in the one who promised deep and abiding rest for all those who come to Him, just as Kyle read from Matthew 11 earlier. Sexual sin feels like the answer to that restlessness but like all of sin's pleasures, it is only temporary and fleeting. So Sam Albury, who is committed to a life of celibacy, says this about celibacy. Celibacy isn't a waste of our sexuality. It's a wonderful way of fulfilling it. It's allowing our sexual feelings to point us to the reality of the gospel. We will never ultimately make sense of what our sexuality is unless we know what it is for, to point us to God's love for us in Christ. So, if this is sexual immorality, this blanket umbrella category for any sexual expression outside of or apart from my covenantal spouse that God may or may not give to me, then what would it mean to ignore this? To continue on with the old ways of the city of man of sexual immorality? What is the result of continuing on this path? Second, what is the result? In verse 3, again, Paul says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There is a direct implication or an indirect implication here of the outside world observing, observing the exact same sexual ethic of the world in the church, of the city of man in the city of God. And then the world coming to a conclusion that these people actually don't believe what they say they believe. This is one reason why the, like the hashtag Church 2 movement, the Church 2 reports of ministerial abuse is so damaging to the glory of God, to the transformative goodness of his kingdom. God's people, especially his under-shepherds, must be exemplary in their sexual ethic. It must not even be named amongst us. Of not, the, of not ignoring the, like, the stay-back signs nearing the edge of the canyon and just assuming that everything will be fine. No, like the people of God staying well clear of temptation and action because we understand what sexual desire is actually for. And so just as we thought about three weeks ago of being a society of truth, of that we speak the truth, we must also be a society of sexual integrity as well. Now, we'll have plenty more to talk about in this category uh, next week. But a first result of sexual morality is that it tarnishes the glory of God. It preaches to a watching world around us that this gospel actually doesn't have any power. And why should I just feel like I need to go to church on Sunday or something uh, when I can just have the life that I want to have without all that? So that's the first thing. But secondly, Verse 5. Now, this is a, uh, a verse that seemingly just like smacks obnoxiously of hateful, judgmental, backward Christianity. But Paul writes this in verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul is emphatic here. He says, you may be sure of this. This is a phrase he almost never uses. You may be sure of this. There is certain certainty of this. 
that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance. Now, to be clear here, some circles of Christianity do very narrowly focus their attention and their preaching on sexual sin. There is seemingly a street preacher on every college campus in America who is out with signs condemning students for their sexual sin. And here, indeed, sexual immorality is just placed along many other categories of sin. Covetousness, which Paul describes as idolatry. In the Matthew 15 list that I read earlier from Jesus, he highlights sexual immorality along with lots of other very serious sins. Murder, adultery, theft, false witness, slander. These are things that we must pay attention to as well. And we will ongoingly talk about false worship here. Nearly every week, idolatry. We talked about greed and covetousness three weeks ago, and then again two weeks ago, maybe not for an entire sermon. But here Paul seems to be linking covetousness to sexual immorality. So you might be thinking, why in the world aren't you like doing a whole sermon on covetousness too? Well, I'm pretty sure Paul is linking these two things. He would certainly encourage us away from coveting our friends' paychecks and their cars and their houses, but it is not an accident that he is placing those things, sexual immorality and covetousness, together. Together twice here in three verses, and like he also did in chapter 4, verse 19, where he said that they have become callous, the, the outside world out there have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So it's important for us here to take an entire sermon to narrowly focus on sexuality, because the very air that we breathe is that of the so-called sexual liberation. It is not so much that Christians talk about sex that much, but that we kind of have to in order to keep up with the never-ending stream of images, of language, of philosophy. Because here's the result of us not doing so, of ignoring sexual immorality and the greedy covetousness and idolatry underneath sexual immorality in our lives. Here's the result of us ignoring this and not taking this so seriously that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Serious words. Paul is not a street preacher here saying that if there is or ever has been in your life any hint of sexual sin, then you are without hope. You are condemned. That you should then rightfully be filled with shame and guilt and that maybe after a couple of decades, maybe, you can prove to God, you can prove to yourself with lots and lots of effort and discipline that you have earned a place back into the kingdom of Christ or something like that. No. The gospel of the kingdom is that today anyone is welcome into the city of Christ, into the city of our kind and gracious, loving king. Everyone who hears these, these words and this invitation, you and you and you and you and you, all of us who are sexually immoral and broken humans might hear believe and respond to this invitation that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever might believe in him would not perish but have eternal life, that his salvation is a free gift of grace so that none of us might boast. None of us might boast in our spiritual or sexual resumes. He tears those up. He tears all of the resumes up, each and every one the so-called good ones and the bad ones. And he says, welcome, my beloved. You are mine. I am your bridegroom, and I love you. I love you with all of my heart to death and back so that we might respond as his bride. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. I belong to him. But now what? Now what? What of life in the kingdom under our king who is our covenantal spouse? Paul says that the ongoing persistent sinner, those who disagree with God about his ultimate aim of sanctification, of making someone take on the character of Jesus, 
those who perhaps have just used God as a get-out-of-jail-free card, who have come to him merely for justification, but actually care very little about the character of the king and of the kingdom, Paul says that that person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God, has no belonging, has no place of receiving a place to dwell with God. And here he doesn't even say no past, present, or future inheritance. All of it is encompassed. The sexually immoral have no past, present, or future inheritance, just nothing. Now hear me very carefully. We must not let a verse like this send us into a tailspin of inward and morbid introspection that brings wave of doubt after doubt after doubt of anxiety after anxiety. It is almost certain that your struggle with sin shows that you are living in the city of God that you do desire his character in your life, that you hate the reality that his character is not your character yet. So the question is more, not, oh my gosh, do I not belong to him? No, the question is, I belong to him, but now, how are my actions or my habits actually shaping my loves? How is my How is the external habit of my life shaping my inner self, what I most want, what I most desire? That's a deeper question of belonging to Jesus, of of, of coming to his patience for the rest of our lives. But perhaps for some here, this should come as a warning, the call to repentance, that maybe you, perhaps you've been thinking that I have fundamentally misunderstood the purpose of my life. I have fundamentally misunderstood the goodness and rightness of God, and I actually want to be aligned to His desires, that I want to agree with Him, that I am sorry for my sin, that I need forgiveness, that I need change, that I need grace, I need transformation. This is called repentance. And we would love to talk to you after the service tonight about what this would mean for your life, of repentance, about what transformation is in your life, about what one sexual sinner talking to another sexual sinner, all of us in the same boat, but now living in the boat with Christ who calms the waves of our lives because he is with us. The inheritance, God himself is here for you today. Right now, do not harden your heart. Do not delay. Might this day, might a sermon about sexual immorality be the day of salvation in your life? Now, one brief note about verse 4 before we wrap this up. In verse 4, Paul says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. This command comes before and after verses about sexual immorality. Jordan very helpfully helped us understand our, uh, think about our speech last week, with the words that we say. And we'll talk more about speech in the coming, in the coming weeks, so that's why I'm just briefly swinging back around to this, because we'll have lots more to say about our words. But crude joking, almost certainly, with sexual immorality on either side of his command here, and with the way that Paul uses these words, almost certainly means jokes, crude joking, jokes that carry a sexual double entendre. So can I suggest something here, with all humility, that a joke made famous by Michael Scott from the office about body parts that is just like utterly ubiquitous. It is everywhere in our culture. Actually might be, actually I'll go here, should not be words that Christians use in words that Paul says here that are out of place. Language does something to us. Jokes do something to us. Sexual jokes do something to us. They can build up calluses that Now, man, I begin to find this thing funnier and funnier and then actually becomes more and more acceptable. Maybe initially just acceptable for others, but then becomes acceptable for me. Now, you seriously, if you weren't thinking this before, now uh, you might think that I am that old misunderstanding definition of a Puritan, that someone who is concerned that someone somewhere might be having fun and a Puritan is out there to say, no, you must not have any fun. That's a wrong misunderstanding of who the the Puritans were, by the way. But 
First, like we asked a couple of weeks ago, what kind of God would give this command? Let no crude joking be amongst you. What kind of God would say that? One that wants us to not have any fun? Or one that desires an overflowing joy that is bubbling out because of a deep wisdom, love, and even virtue? But second, man, like all things are cyclical. Everything is cyclical. Like 20 years ago, shoot, three years ago, it would have been terribly prudish and backward to suggest nearly everything that I have said here tonight. But it's kind of unbelievable what's happening in the last year or two. Unbelievable what's happening. The kind of stuff that's been written in 2021 and 2022 in places like The Atlantic and The Washington Post. Columns titled something like this, Consent is not enough. We need a new sexual ethic. Or the shocking new 2022 book by the liberal feminist Louisa Perry. Her book is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. It's amazing. It's like eye-opening. Stuff that like Christians have been saying for years. That when consent is the only basis for any or every sexual relationship, the decades and decades of empirical evidence show unreal individual psychological and emotional harm, but even societal harm, most generally or most specifically against women. That so many today are realizing that sex is more than just a biological act, but should also be more about like the whole selfing of a human. And so then you get hilarious posts from of all places like the website Vice with this as its opening paragraph. There's a new type of relationship style in town. There's a pretty high chance you haven't heard of it. It's called radical monogamy. Before writing this piece, I asked around to see if anyone knew of the term. The most common response was, what is that? Monogamy. (laughs) So all that to say, so many of our cultural mores and expectations are actually just cyclical. And is is it possible that when you are 70 and you look back at the kinds of crude and coarse kinds of joking that you just didn't even think about when you were in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s, and when you're in your 70s and your 80s, and you're like, ooh. One, because maybe, I think it's possible that in a few decades, societally, we have come back to look at those things and be like, ooh, didn't like that about us then. But also, like, When you think of the most godly older person that you know of in your life, someone who is 70 or 80, and this is the kind of man or woman that you want to be, like, can you imagine putting the joke that you just made in their mouth? And how you would respond if you heard that person make that joke? Let's become those people. Let's become the most godly people that younger people look up to. You'll never be what you're not becoming. Let us be people, a society of truth, a society of a sexual ethic, a society of words that bring glory to the Lord and edify others. All right, I've left myself with like no time for this last question here, but quickly, what is the antidote for sexual immorality? The first and easy answer is the saving and transforming power of the gospel. That's the antidote. That Jesus dies for rebellious sinners. He welcomes the wounded and the hurting. He loves and transforms people into new creations by the power of his spirit. But in Ephesians 3, 5, 3 through 5, specifically, what is the antidote? Paul says in verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Again, crude joking in the context of sexual immorality, which are out of place. But instead, what does he say? Let there be thanksgiving. In contrast to everything else that has come before, instead, Paul says, of all of that, let there be thanksgiving. One commentator says, whereas sexual impurity and covetousness both express self-centered acquisitiveness, things that we acquire, thanksgiving is the exact opposite. It is the recognition of God's generosity. Thankfulness is the antidote of taking and taking and taking and taken. It is the recognition that the body that I have is a good gift from God. In creation, he gives people bodies and he calls them good. They are not prisons for the soul. That the relationships I have are good gifts from God. 
that the communion and peace I have with God is a good gift from God, that wherever I find myself or whatever I have, all of these things are gracious gifts from God. And so I'll leave us here with the words of the single woman, Paige Brown, the same words that I wrapped up our singleness seminar a few years ago with, that in reflecting on the goodness and the love and the wisdom of God, she wrote this. She says, I want to be married. I pray to that end every day. I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. I may never have another date because God is so good to me. So that when the 60 minutes interviewer of our lives asks us, so what's the answer then? We don't respond with, I wish I knew. I wish, I, I, I wish it was the next job promotion or I wish it was this or this or this sexual encounter or this spouse or I wish I knew we might be able to answer with confidence, experiential confidence, for I know my Redeemer lives. And I will stand with him on that day. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. This is the good and transforming gospel, our inbuilt homing instinct, urging us to go to the divine. And this is why Paul says, we must go there. We must go there. Let the opposite of that not even be named amongst us. Let us be known for our sexual ethic, for our understanding of anthropology, for who and what a human is, created by God, for God, for the glory of God, for our own joy. Let this be true of us, Christ Church. Let, let, seriously, let this be a jumping off point conversation upon conversation upon conversation amongst each other, with me, with Kyle, with Raybo, with anybody, your GC leader, let's talk about these things deeply. To ignore these conversations is poison. So let's have them together for the glory of God and for our own joy. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you are a good Father, that every good thing that we have is from you. That our marriages, that our singleness, that our families, that our church, all of these are for our good. You love us. Father, we want to believe. Help our unbelief. We want to believe that you are good, that you are wise, that you are so loving to us, that you give us all that we need. Help us believe those things wherever we find ourselves. Whether we find ourselves single and longing for marriage, whether we find ourselves in marriage and lonely, in a difficult marriage, in an abusive marriage. Father, give us the right way forward. Give us the right words. Give us the conviction and the uh, courage to speak and to have these conversations with others. We want to believe, Father. Help our unbelief. We want to be your people. We love being your people. We love living in your kingdom, King Jesus. Help us to be more and more your people by your spirit. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.